the points that he raises essentially three, three points. He said, first is, Luke's introduction has massive weight. He's got this long, stabilizing sentence, and it says this. First, in verse 1, many have drawn up accounts of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Many have drawn up accounts of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, which, it, which is unsurprising if Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did. I know we've got the four Gospels and a few little other ancient writings that suggest Jesus did exist, but according to this, there were many other accounts that were written up. The shame or the disappointment, not the shame. The disappointment is that we don't necessarily have those today to look at and to uncover and to explore further, but it looks like there were many, and I'm not surprised by that because if Jesus was a bit of a head-turner, which he was, many people would have wanted to write about him. So Luke is saying he's one of many at the time that he was writing. That's reasonably compulsive. The second, in verse 2, he talks about many of the accounts being handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the words. In other words, we've got first-hand accounts. We've got people uh, here that Luke has looked at, writings that they've written down that was first-hand. They were there. They saw it. They were involved in some of the stories. He was looking at first-hand material, which I think is, is, is reasonably compelling as well. And then thirdly, he said, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I'm going to write my own account. Or in other words, careful investigation probably means that he interviewed, interrogated, found out from the witnesses who were there what really happened. So he's done a lot of spade work in terms of finding out the truth of this whole story of Jesus that he wanted to bring to his readership as he introduces his gospel, which I think is interesting. Then he uses the word, uh, the person to whom he is writing, Theophilus, as someone uh, that he's specifically writing to. And uh, again, uh, the supposition about whether Theophilus was an individual or not. Theophilus in the original Greek means lover of God. So there's a suggestion that uh, anybody that reads the Gospel of Luke who is a lover of God is the audience. And so he's writing to an amorphous everybody. Uh, on the other hand, because of those two words in front of Theophilus, which is most excellent, there's a suggestion it was an individual. It may have been a Roman official, someone of high rank, or even his publisher, someone that backed Luke as he was trying to write this piece of work and go on his missionary journeys that he did. It would suggest with Paul when Paul was around as well. Either way, in my view, it doesn't really matter because the bit that really hits you between the eyes is the agenda that Ruth... <laughs> Ruth. It was a great series, Ruth, wasn't it? It's the agenda... <laughs> is the agenda that Luke was writing with. The agenda that Luke was writing, whether to an individual, I'll say it again, either to an individual or to a group, he was writing so that they would know the certainty of the things they'd been taught. The certainty of the things they had been taught. It would seem that Luke's looking to underline or herald or rubber stamp, approve of, make sure everybody is absolutely clear that everything they've heard about Jesus, everything they've taught about Jesus, everything that they thought is that true, isn't true about Jesus, is true. He wanted them to know. He was writing with a clear agenda to convince people that Jesus was the truth. And people say, oh, yeah, yeah. Gospels are written with agenda, so you can't really believe them. I think, well, of course they're written with agenda. And why can't you believe them? Because the agenda is clear that this is certainly true. So what do you think of that? Rather than, oh, he's saying it's certainly true, so it must be false. That's inverse logic, in my opinion. So this is, 
I think, a massively compelling introduction to this particular gospel. It's Luke writing with an agenda to either an individual or to a group of people to basically say, look, everything that you've been taught, everything that you've heard, everything that you know about this man Jesus, it's true, and I'm going to lay out a document, lay out a, a, a story so that you can know that it is true. And it's against this sensible, sober background this reasonable background, this commonsensical background, in my view, that we get the rest of the gospel. And what hits you straight between the eyes immediately then is how ridiculous it immediately gets. Luke, having just made this really reasoned introduction, say, believe this, this is true, it's certainly true, I'm going to show you that it's true, then starts writing the most ridiculous fairy tale stuff you can ever imagine. I don't know if you ever thought of that. So in, in, the, in the next few verses, verse 5 to 25, we're not going to look at that, you get the angel Gabriel visiting Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are both old of age, and the angel Gabriel basically saying to them, unable to have children, she was barren, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah doesn't believe the angel Gabriel, but it would appear that after some thought, I know he loses his sight and all the rest of it, after some thought, Elizabeth and he go and check it out just to make sure whether it's true or not, and sure enough, John the Baptist is born. That's immediately what happens in the story. So Luke, having had a really sensible introduction, starts introducing an angel, starts introducing an, a really elderly couple, introduces uh, the, the woman who's barren and hasn't had any children for years, says you're going to have a children, and all of a sudden does have a child. That is the stuff of movies and film. But Luke is saying it's certainly true. And then he picks up with the next encounter of the angel Gabriel, which is the one we're going to read the story of Christmas, the announcement of the birth of Jesus. So from verse 26, he picks up the story again. And he says this, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a, name named, to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. 
This is an incredible part of the story. This is an unbelievable part of the story. This is fairy tale land that we're in again. Next phase of fairy tale land in Luke's sensible presentation of the gospel of Jesus, the truth about Jesus. Because what he has, he's got an angel Gabriel visiting a young virgin woman. A woman who had, if I can say it plainly, never had sex with a man. Yes, she was betrothed to Joseph. It was like an engagement, a legal uh, arrangement that she was going to marry him. But she was a virgin. She says so herself. How can this be? Because I'm a virgin. How can I have a child? I'm a virgin. She actually says it. She comes out of her own mouth. Anybody that says that Mary wasn't a virgin just needs to look at it and say she said that she was. So what's the big argument about? And Luke introduces her as a virgin as well. Says, look, the angel Gabriel visited Mary who was the virgin. And so here we have this inexplicable new piece of massive controversy for the Christian faith. That Jesus is going to be born, and he's not going to be born of a natural mum and dad like Zechariah and Elizabeth, even though that in and of itself was miraculous. He is going to be born of a woman and of God. Now, most reasonable people will look at that story and think, complete and utter nonsense. That is ridiculous. That is fairy tale. That is untrue. It can't be true. It must be made up. One of the reasons I don't believe the Christian faith is because it has this sort of nonsense in it. That never happens in life. Women don't get pregnant by not having a man involved in the process. And yet, Luke has got it right here in our faces, right from the beginning. He puts it in play. Mary was a virgin. Joseph is not going to be God's uh, Jesus' dad, God is. And there's that verse in it which essentially says that. The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So I thought today, why don't we unpack a little bit the virgin birth? Something that perhaps we don't necessarily always think that we're going to do. Something that perhaps people who you know, who may not be followers of Jesus, have got questions about. You might have questions about yourself. Certainly there's a lot of speculation about whether it was true or not. Let's have a little look at the virgin birth and see what we think. See whether it has any significance at all to the, the Christmas story and the life and times of Jesus. Well, of course, from a Christian point of view, it does. But many people have got lots of questions about this. Here's a quote from a bloke called Rob Bell. I'm not going to go at Rob Bell at this point. I actually quite like, like him. He's an American guy. He's a massively brilliant communicator. He draws people into debate by saying things that you don't quite know whether he's saying what he's saying or not about things that a lot of evangelical theologians kind of raise their hands and say, heresy, heresy, heresy. But I think he's really clever. What he does is he draws things into the community for us to start talking about them to see what we think our theology is. This is a quote from a book he wrote in 2005. And he said this, What if someone tomorrow digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was just a bit of mythalizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular of the time of Jesus, whose gods also had virgin births. But what if, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language at the time, the word virgin could mean several things, not just somebody who hadn't had sex with a man. And what if you discover... He didn't say that, I added it. You spotted that probably if you're following. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she had intercourse? 
What if that spring was seriously questioned? Could a person keep jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? There are people in the Christian world who are followers of Jesus that have questions about the virgin birth. The ex-bishop of Durham, Dr. David Jenkins, was also one of those people high up in the Anglican church questioned the virgin birth. So the question we have is, is it absolutely critical to the Christmas story and to the identity of Jesus? Yes or no? The answer to that question from me is absolutely yes. Absolutely bang on, 100% yes. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, we've got some very difficult things that we have to cope with in our theology. And I'm going to give us four very brief reasons and uh, hang around a little bit on the last one. Four very brief reasons. The first reason is that the virgin birth is an essential piece of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. An essential piece of evidence. What does that mean? On Alpha, we cover this sort of stuff in Alpha all the time. We do this who is Jesus talk when we debate uh, the, who Jesus said he was and what's the evidence to support what he, what, who he said he was. And one of the things that Jesus uh, needed to do was fulfill Old Testament prophecies. He needed to be one that when you look back in time and they said the Messiah will come and if you like he's wearing a big red jacket, he needed to be wearing a big red jacket. Now, obviously, that's a trivial example. But one of, the, one of the things that the Messiah needed to be was born of a virgin. Rob Bell has alluded to it in that quote, but from Isaiah 7, verse 14, it says this, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So there couldn't be a Messiah-like character coming to town unless he was born of a virgin. It had to be the case that the Messiah was born of a virgin. If the Messiah came along pronouncing to be the Messiah, and yet he had a natural mum and dad, everybody in the know would point back to Isaiah and say, no, 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 that can't be true because this says you need to be born of a virgin. It's not something you can engineer, unfortunately, either, is it? Just like the death of Jesus wasn't something he could engineer, and that was prophesied too in Isaiah. So that's the first piece of evidence that Jesus was born of a virgin, and therefore he must have been the Messiah. There's more speculation we can go into. I'm not going to do that because of time. Second is this. The uniting of full humanity and full deity in one person is achieved. What do I mean by that? This is God delivering a God-man to planet Earth. Fully God and fully man. It's the virgin birth that does it. When we think about it, you see, God could have... He could have made a perfect God-man in heaven. He could have made Jesus an adult in heaven and somehow transported him down to earth as a natural adult human being. God could have done it like that. He didn't have to be born as a baby. But the trouble is, if he did something like that, and this kind of superhuman, wonderful man appeared who had all God-like characters as well, we think, where did he come from? Everybody would think probably he was some kind of spaceman or weird creature that came from outer space. Some people today do think that's the case about Jesus. God could have done it like that. God could have done it another way. He could have, he could have had a natural mum and dad give birth to a son. And over time, he could have grown up having experiences of God such that he became God-like. He became one who became known as God. God could have done it like that as well. But then we think, hey, hang on, you're just like you and me. You're just like a normal human being because you had a normal mum and dad. The reason that God sent Jesus to be born of a virgin with Mary as mum and God as dad was so that he had got uniquely the full humanity of man and the, few, the full deity of God in that created creature, in that baby. And that is unique. 
to the Christian faith. So the full uniting of humanity and deities is another reason why the virgin birth is so critical. The third is that Jesus had no inherited sin being born from a virgin. No inherited sin. How does this one work? But Romans 5 verse 12 says this. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. I'll read it again. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. How does this work? I don't know what you think about the, the, the purity of a baby being born, a human being being born. You know, when they're born, are they pure? Are they holy? Are they good? And then they become destructive, they become sinful, they learn bad behavior as they go on in life. Some people think that. Some people think that if you had a baby and you chucked it on a desert island and just let it get on with itself, it would actually be a perfect human being. Some people think that. It doesn't seem to be the case according to the Bible. According to the Bible, it says, look, there was this bloke, Adam, and he messed up before God. And as a result of his sin, every single human being since has fallen short of the glory of God, has sinned, has got things wrong, has the potential to do harm. I know when I've looked at the growing up of my own kids, I mean, I like to think that I'm a good dad and you know, demonstrate how to do good living towards them, but they naturally just do, did stuff that was wrong. They naturally did stuff that needed correction. Our heart as parents is to teach a child how to do good uh, rather, than, rather than to do anything else. It's, it's showing them that they're wrong and then showing them how to do, to do good. Now, the question, of course, is, how does it work in terms of Jesus being born of God rather than being born of Joseph and Mary? And here's the sort of slight sort of biological element, if you like, spiritual biological, which is the, the sin genome, if you like. The characteristic of sin is carried through the male line. So Adam was the bloke that sinned, and through sin, death came through one man. And so that is carried through from generation to generation. Every dad, if you like, carries that sin genome. It's not carried in the woman, it's carried in the man. Because it's Adam that messed up. And so every woman has it because they all have a natural dad. So, but you don't carry it on. It's the dad that carries on. Which is why in this case, Jesus couldn't be born of Joseph. Because he would have immediately imparted that sin genome, the language I'm using is not Bible language, into Jesus... And he would therefore be just like everybody else, just like you, just like me, with the potential of sin. Because he had a holy God, God as his father, a pure God, an unblemished God, not Joseph, he didn't have it. Mary had it, but he wasn't passed, she wasn't passing that in to Jesus. So there's no inherited sin in Jesus, which is why in Luke 1 verse 35, that verse again, it says, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One, Jesus, to be born, will be called the Son of God. He was holy. He was set apart. He was pure. There was no blemish in Jesus. He was the unique human being, the only one that had ever lived that had no inherited sin in him. And what's the big deal of that? Fourth and final point in terms of the virgin birth. Jesus could therefore do what he was purposed to do. Jesus could do what he was purposed to do. Jesus was a Messiah. He was a saviour. He came with a mission, a rescue mission, and potentially, therefore, because he had no inherited sin... He had the ability to carry through what he needed to do. I'll come back to that in a minute. Before I do that, I just want to tell you a quick story. It's absolutely true. So I had some friends over for a meal on uh, Friday evening. These are friends of ours that he's like super intelligent, a friend of mine. Uh, I, I feel a little bit nervous when he comes around, actually, because he can talk about everything and ev anything. And I, I often think, I don't know what you're talking about, so I have to pretend that I do. He's smiling and nodding and sort of moving on to football type stuff. But... <laughs> 
But uh, we had a really great evening, actually, and uh, a really generous couple, and normally bring a bottle of champagne around, which is really kind of them. We got chatting as we do after the meal, and one of the, one of the inexplicable things we got talking about was uh, my friend's sudden interjection, and I don't know where this came from, about whether we'd shop our kids to the police if they'd done anything wrong. Whether we'd shop our kids to the police if they'd done anything wrong. I don't think the conversation came up because his kids had done anything wrong. It certainly wasn't the case for mine that I was thinking, well, how can we get this conversation into play because I don't know what to do. But this conversation came up, and in the conversation, my friend made this announcement that he said, no mum, no mother should ever have to shop their son to the police. So that was his, that was his head. I said, no, no wife, no mum should ever have the weight, the responsibility of needing to shop their son to the police, even if their son had done something wrong. So I said, are you serious? I said, you know, is that, is that culturally, morally appropriate? He said, I just, I just think the love of the mum, the love of the mum, it needs to be taken away from them. They shouldn't need to have to do it. I said, what happens if, I said, what happens if the son's murdered somebody? You know, surely if the son has murdered somebody, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to take that somewhere. You can't just pretend it hasn't happened and keep it all closed shot. We got onto the Yorkshire Ripper and other nasty people like that. What would his mum do? I said, surely, surely if someone's been murdered, you've got to do something about it. He said, don't think so. Don't think so. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it would. He said, and then I said, all right. But what about if your son murdered ten people? what would you do then? Would you, would, you, would you shop your son to the police if your son murdered 10 people? At which point he said, well, actually, yeah, I suppose if my son did murder 10 people, I probably wouldn't need to tell somebody about that. So probably I would do something about it, but I wouldn't ask my wife to do it. I'd probably have to do it myself. A mum should never have to shop her, her son to the police. I said, all right, so we've landed on 10, 10 murders. <laughs> I said, where, where are we going to draw the line? So we get, should we go down to five? Is five murders all right? And he went, mm, I don't know. I said, two murders? He said, actually, yeah, two. Let's, let's resettle on two. He said, let's resettle on two murders. He said, you can murder once and it kind of get away with it, but if you do it again, then probably you do need to tell someone. I couldn't believe it. It was a great, but it was a great conversation because, I mean, it, it drew us into Jesus. It drew us into, we're, we're, you know, sin nature. It drew us into where you draw the line between good and evil, all that kind of stuff. It was a really good conversation. It's a conversation that I like. It wasn't overly intellectually too challenging for me, so I was quite pleased about that. And I didn't need to get it onto football. The point is this. God is love. God is love. And if you like, and if you can accept this, God is everybody's heavenly father. He's, if you like, he's our parent in heaven. God is a father. He is a parent, if you're a follower of Jesus. And his love for us is a little bit like, if you like, my friend's wife's love for her son, which is that he doesn't want to shop us to anybody because he loves us so much. God is for us, not against us. He's 100% for us. Yes, he gets upset, angry about some of the things that we do wrong, as any parent does. When your kids, and I've got them, as you probably most of you know, when they do things that are wrong, you don't think joy and laughter and happiness. You feel an intense sense of disappointment or worry or concern or anger sometimes. But what you don't do is stop loving them. You keep loving them, but you want to kind of bring some kind of correction. You want to kind of bring them through the difficulty that they're in. So if you like God in heaven, he's totally for us, but his stomach turns when we mess up. And if you like... 
because he loves us so much, he can't just turn the blind eye. He's got to do something about it. He's got to shop us somehow, but he doesn't know how, apart from the fact that he does know how, because he's God. And what does he do? And the amazing thing is, in my view, using this illustration, is I think he, what he does is he shops us to ourself. All right? He shops us to ourselves. What do I mean by that? He basically, because of the grace of God and the love of God, he exposes our wrongdoing to ourselves. He shows us that we are as bad as we are. He shows us that we fall short of his glory. He shows us that we do mess up and get things wrong. We do hurt people, even though we try not to. We don't, try and do, as many good, we don't do as many good things as we like to think we do. We do say harsh words. We do gossip behind people's back, all that kind of stuff. He shows us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we mess up. If you like, he exposes us to ourselves. And then as we become exposed to ourselves, we realize that God is holy and amazing and wonderful. And what we end up doing is falling on our knees before him. That's probably what most of our stories uh, are if we've got any relationship with God. We've come to a point of humility before him, knowing that we're broken and rubbish before him, and he is totally wonderful. And of course, having done that, he then says, look, I'm not going to hand you over, if you like, to the sin police, Satan and the demons and all these cronies or whatever. I'm not going to banish you to prison forever, hell and whatever that looks like. I'm going to rescue you. I've done something to rescue you. And what I've done to rescue you is I've given you my son Jesus. He's the one who's taken the flack. He's the one who's taken the pain. He's the one who's died on the cross. He's the one who always thinks uh, the best of us. He's the one who, thick and thin, is always for us and never against us. And that's why the gospel of Jesus has Jesus taking on the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 one of my favourite verses, it's so easy to remember, because it rhymes. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It nearly rhymes. But it's actually it's really powerful. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If Jesus was sinful, if he had inherited sin, that verse doesn't work. Because he's got his own price to pay. He has to be shopped just like any other man or woman. Jesus had no inherited sin, and therefore he had the potential of doing what he came to do, which is die on the cross. The potential was realized because he never put a foot wrong. He always did the right thing, he never did the wrong thing. When people, said, when people accused Jesus of doing wrong things, he said, well, I can find nothing wrong in him. Pontius Pilate said, there's nothing wrong with this man. Jesus was holy, Jesus was perfect, Jesus was pure, and therefore the fourth reason why the virgin birth is so important is because he not only had the potential to do what he came to do, but he actually did it as well. So you've got four reasons there why the virgin birth has to be a nail on certainty. It was evidence that he was the Messiah, it was evidence that he was fully God and fully man, it was evidence that he is free from inherited sin, and it's evidence that he was able to fully and perfectly become our saviour. That is, if you like, teaching some of the Christmas message. But it's the bit of the Christmas message that we often just skate over and don't give a second thought to. My encouragement to us this Christmas time is this. When people start talking about the Christmas message and bits of it that they think, oh, you don't believe that, do you? It's all fairy tale and hodgepodge. Two things. One is point them to the beginning of Luke and that little introduction, and say, actually, have you ever read this, this, this bit of the gospel? It's reasonably compelling. It actually sounds as though this bloke has done his homework and knows what he's talking about. Then be honest and say, but actually, this first part of the story just sounds like it's complete claptrap and made up 
and totally fantastical, and yet we've got that introduction which suggests it might be true. And then, if you get something like the virgin birth, because you can get them onto it, because now you know that you've got the details at your disposal, get them onto it and start debating and say, actually, can you see how it actually fits the whole of the story? It's not just something that's been made up into the story. How does that, how does that work for us today in terms of the things I started with? which is going through trials and tribulations, God feeling the best for us, all that kind of stuff. I don't really know, actually, in the end, if I'm honest. <laughs> but I want you to hold those things on the one hand and think, that's what God said during worship. And I want us to go armed on the other with something new about the Christmas message so that as we go out into the world, it isn't just missed at Christmas. It's something that we can use to draw people into the presence of God. I'm going to pray and then we'll end. Uh, God, I just want to thank you that you have got an amazing salvation plan that you have worked out. And uh, you've worked it out through Jesus. And at Christmas time, we get a chance to look, at it, look in at it and think, wow, what an incredible thing that is. I want to thank you, Jesus, that with the agreement of Father and Spirit, you are willing to somehow restrict yourself to an embryo inside Mary's womb, to be born as a baby to grow up as a little toddler, to go through child years and teenage years, never saying things wrong, doing things wrong. It's unbelievable, Jesus, that you could become God incarnate. And I thank you for the amazing truths of the Christmas message. And I thank you as well for people like Luke, who investigated it, who wanted to know whether it was true for himself and for others, and then has written it all down to make it as clear as possible for all of us. And I ask for all of us here, Lord God, and for those that are people that don't know you, that as we read this and as we think about it, and as we ask your Holy Spirit to change us, change our thinking, that you would help us to know the certainty of everything that we believe so that we can be champions for pointing people to you, the amazing supernatural God that you are. So I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>